Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Willard Spiegelman discusses poet Amy Clampett. Willard Spiegelman is the editor of Southwest Review and a professor of English at Southern Methodist University. He teaches and writes about the entire range of poetry in English, as well as the influence of Greek and Latin classics on the post-Renaissance literary world. He's written and edited several books on poetry, including How to Read and Understand Poetry, How Poets See the World, and The Selected Letters of Amy Clampett. Amy Clampett became a poet late in her life. She was born in Iowa in 1920 and graduated from Grinnell College. She then moved to New York, where she held various jobs through the 1940s and 50s, while trying unsuccessfully to write novels. In the 1960s, she began writing poetry, and eventually her work appeared in The New Yorker. With the publication of The Kingfisher in 1983, at the age of 63, she became one of the most highly regarded poets in America. Here's Willard Spiegelman speaking at the Arts Club of Chicago on October 15, 2007. Lecturing um, to an audience of this sort and this size is always something of a challenge. I'm going to be speaking to you in, I suppose, what can be called three voices. The first is that of me, Willard Spiegelman, uh, critic, reader of poetry, and most recently the editor of the letters of Amy Clampett. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. The second voice um, is the voice of Amy Clampett, the woman whose voice comes out in this volume of letters from which I will read. And the third voice, the most important voice, without which the other two voices would not be important or relevant at all, is the voice of Amy Clampett, the poet. So let me begin by reading one of her poems to you, and then I'll go back and tell you something about her and something about my involvement with her. The first thing I will say before I even read the poem is this. Uh, she occupies an unusual, perhaps a unique place in contemporary or 20th century American poetry insofar as she was a late bloomer. If the present Pope decides to give sainthood to a non-Catholic and wants to um, designate somebody the patron saint of late bloomers, uh, it will be Amy Clampett. Her first poems came out when she was 53, sorry, 57, and her first book was published when she was 63 years old. So for those of you who still have hopes that are pointing towards the stars, there is a precedent for you. The first poem is from her second volume called What the Light Was Like, which was published in 1987. Her active poetic career lasted for 10 years, from about 1983 until her death in 1994. This is a poem called Losing Track of Language. I will give you the, mere, the merest and briefest uh, commentary uh, or elucidation of things in it before I read it. Gallipades, galliards are Renaissance dance forms. Petrarch, most of you know as the 14th century poet who, if not invented, then at least perfected the sonnet. Sappho, the archaic Greek poet, whose work exists almost entirely in fragments. This is a travel poem. The train leaps toward Italy, 
the French Riviera falls away in the dark, the rails sing Dimeter shifting to Trimeter, a galopade to a galliard. We sit wedged among strangers. Whatever we once knew, it was never much, of each other falls away with the landscape. Words fall away. We trade instead in flirting and cigarettes. We're all rapport with strangers. The one with the yellow forelock that keeps falling and being shaken back again, syncopating the Dimeter Trimeter gallopade into Galliard, is, it seems, Italian. Recently a pilgrim to the Vaucluse, where Petrarca, to the noise of waterfalls, measured out his strict stanzas, little rooms for turmoil to grow lucid in, for change to put on more durable leaves of bronze, a scapular of marble. A splutter of pleasure at hearing the name is all he needs, and he's off like a racehorse at the polio, plunging unbridled into recited cadenzas, three beat lines interleaving a liquid pentameter. What are words? They fall away into the fleeing dark of the French Riviera, as once a shower of bloom, una pioggia di fiore, descended into the lap of the Trecento, her hair all gold and pearl, the grass still warm as when she sat there six centuries gone by, that squandered heartbeat, the black plague, took her young, now fossilized as bronze, as carved laurel. Whatever of left of her is language, and what is language but breath, leaves, petals fallen, or in the act of falling, pollen of turmoil that sifts through the fingers. A conosha, I ask it to keep the torrent of words from ending ever. Anke Safo? Yes, he knows he will oblige. The limpid pentameter gives way to something harsher. Diphthongs condense, take on an edge of bronze. Though I don't understand a word, what are words? Do these concern one timus, led before she was married, or so one leaf of what's left would have it, to the dark bedroom of Persephone, for so long nowhere at home, either here or there, forever returning and falling back again into the dark of these 10,000 years. The train leaps toward Italy. Words fall away through the dark, into the dark bedroom of everything left behind, the unendingness of things lost track of, of who, of where, where I'm losing track of language. One thing to say about this poem, as you have it on your sheet, is that you should never trust the um, internet because this was taken from a website and there are misprints in it. I don't know who put the stuff in, but there are words left out. Fortunately, I know the poem, so I put the words back in. Do not trust the internet. Buy the book instead. What can we tell about the woman who wrote this poem by reading it, and by the woman who wrote it, I mean two things. What can we tell about her as a personality to the extent that there is a relationship between the speaker of the poem and the actual living Amy Clampett? And second of all, what can we tell about her as a poet? We can tell that she has an interest in travel. She has an interest in travel by train. Amy Clampett was a very rare traveler because up until the very end of her life, uh, when it was impossible to do this, she would not fly. She hated airplanes, and all of her European trips were made uh, by crossing the Atlantic in boats, and she liked taking trains. Even more than trains, she liked taking buses. Not my idea of a good time, 
but she loved taking buses throughout this country. And I'll say more about that later because it's a function of her Quaker spirit, about which I shall also say more later. And she liked being on trains and buses in order to talk to other people, to make a community, in this case, a community of one or two, the lover she's with and the man she's speaking to, engaged in a conversation in languages they can barely understand. Uh, so it's a, it's a poem about rapport with strangers. It's a poem about connections, and it's a poem about movement. And in relation to movement, we can also say that this is a woman who has a considerable amount of energy, because there's great energy in the articulation and the rhythm of this poem. Galliped, galliard, dimeter, trimeter, yetata, 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 it's the sound of the train going along the tracks. And we also notice that she is a woman who loves long sentences. Um, Amy Clampett wrote more poems that had only one sentence in them than anyone else in the 20th century. And by, long, and by poem, I mean something longer than a sonnet. I mean a poem that might be 50 or 60 or 70 lines long that is one sentence. It's kind of a lie to say that because there are a lot of semicolons uh, in some of the sentences. So you could say, well, those are just shorter sentences broken up. But the energy goes on and on and on. Next, you can say she's a woman who has a great commitment to what is sometimes derisively referred to as high literary culture. For her, the lived experience of traveling in a train, seeing a new landscape, is no different from and part and parcel of, it's not antithetical to, a conversation about the great poets who are brought alive uh, in her mind because that's where they have always rested. Reading and living are not rival dispensations. They are twin sides of the same coin. And she is also a poet, especially in a poem like this, who believes in, or in this case is proving, one of the points that T.S. Eliot made a long time ago in his essay on Dante, that poetry can communicate before it is understood. Uh, in this case, they're thinking about, they're thinking in Italian, and in Greek, and she doesn't understand a word, and yet she does understand a great deal of what the man on the train is saying to her. And last of all, or I might have said first of all, if I were approaching this as a literary critic, one of the things we see about Clampett is that she is a playful poet, and by playful I mean she works with various motifs, light motifs, things that keep recurring in the poem, and in this case, the poem really is a what would we call it? A series of variations on a theme, and the theme is that of loss. Losing, leaving, leafs. The words recur throughout the poem in many ways. Uh, things are being left behind, and Clampett was a poet very uh, attuned to loss. Let me go back and say something about her life as a poet, and then I'll go back to say something about her life before she was a poet. She was a presence on the literary scene from 1978, which is when her first poems appeared, until 1994, when she died. In those 10 years, uh, well, the 10 years between her first book, The Kingfisher, 1983, and her last book in 1994, in those 10 years, her reputation rose like a comet, like a meteor. Uh, one of the interesting things about poets, and perhaps it's true of other kinds of artists as well, but poets are the artists whom I know best, is that there is a stock market involved. Reputations go up, reputations come down. 
And every great poet in the 20th century has suffered a decline in reputation or esteem after his or her death. The one notable exception in the past 50 years is the late American poet Elizabeth Bishop, who died in 1979, who, during her lifetime, with her four thin volumes, published one a decade from the 40s to the 70s, was thought of as a poet's poet. That was a kind of condescending way of thinking of her. In the almost 30 years since she has died, alas for her, but good for her estate, her sales have skyrocketed. And she is now a recognizable part of most college curricula, which is one way of assuring immortality. Uh, Clampett's reputation has sunk in the almost 15 years since her death. Uh, and it's one of the things that a series like this is intended to do uh, to help to revive the recently dead. She was much lauded. She won a MacArthur Prize, she got a Guggenheim. She was taken on by various critics, critics as diverse but as powerful as um, Harold Bloom at Yale and mostly Helen Vendler at Harvard who helped to uh, put her into the limelight. But she was also derided and the, and the reasons for her being derided are interesting poetically and culturally. One, she was condescended to by men James Dickey, sitting next to her at a dinner party, turned to her and said, oh, you write about flowers. End of conversation. Uh, another poet said to her, she quotes this in a letter, uh, in the letters that I've edited, said to her, oh, you're in love with words, by which he meant, she inferred, that she used too many of them. I would simply suggest that there is no such thing as a poet who is not in love with words, first of all. Second of all, that every poet uses just as many words as are necessary to communicate what that poet wants to say. In her case, there are lots of them. In the case of Robert Creeley, there are very few of them. One of Robert Creeley's early critics said, there are few words and there ought to be fewer of them. But Amy Clampett wrote very enthusiastic poetry. Actually, if you've ever, ever heard, and I've, I heard her read a couple of times, and there are tapes of her, if you hear her read, you will hear an almost breathy quality. Like Allen Ginsberg, who was able to recite the long, long lines of his Whitmanian work, Amy Clampett was able to take these long sentences and recite them with utter clarity without losing a breath. There was a kind of breathlessness in her that made her sound, as I once remarked, like what Marilyn Monroe would have sounded like had she been an intellectual. Um, Amy looked like a tea cozy. She looked like a little old lady. And she lived like a bohemian. And she thought like a radical. Uh, and when she spoke, she sounded like a precocious teenager. But she was also, although many people took her up, she was also derided. And interestingly, some of the people who derided her were women, not just the condescending men, but a lot of feminists thought that she was too frilly, frou-frou, and poetessa-like, writing, writing about flowers. That's the stuff of the 19th century. What those morons did not realize, not having read her, is that she wrote among the most important political poems of the last half of the 20th century because she was a deeply committed political activist. Mary Carr, a not unintelligent person, wrote a review of Amy Clampett, uh, which was entirely wrong-headed. 
uh, which she, in which she said that it sounds like a parody of the Victorian silk that Ezra Pound sought to unravel, that the enthusiasm was bathetic, that is, excessive. And another friend of mine said, I like the poems, but to go through the whole volume is like eating an entire meal of desserts, over-rich, too sweet. Mary Carr goes on and said, it sounds like Swinburne on acid, or Tennyson gone mad with his thesaurus. Other feminists took issue with the fact that she did have a commitment to high European culture, to the dead white males of her education. And um, one other poet, well, I will mention her name, our former poet laureate Louise Glick, in almost every conceivable way, in person and in style, the antithesis of Amy Clampett, said to me in a letter, I detest her work. Poets often have strong opinions, but that's chacun à son goût, in this case, each one to her taste. Let me tell you something about Amy's life, which is interesting. One of the things that I think are true about the edition of letters that I published, that I published with Columbia University Press two years ago, is that the book is of interest even to, or especially to, people who have no interest in poetry. Because Amy lived in anonymity for the first 57 years of her life. She was born in 1920. Uh, to a farm in a farm community, uh, New Harmony, Iowa. The parents were Quaker farmers who had gone back generations from North Dakota to Iowa. She was the eldest of five siblings. She was bookish and eccentric from the start. When she was 18, she went off to Grinnell College where she won all of the major literary awards and from which she was graduated in 1942. She then made a beeline to Manhattan. She was very committed, like many people, uh, from small towns. She was very committed to her small town upbringing and she couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. So she went to Manhattan in 1942 where she had a fellowship to do graduate work at Columbia. Like many people who are writers, uh, they go to a university and they look at the academic side of things and they say thank you very much, goodbye, and she dropped out before the year was up. And then she began doing what artists and intellectuals have done for generations in New York. She set herself up living with a series of tedious jobs because she always knew that she wanted to be a writer. And she wrote. One of the things that are most interesting about Clampett, and this is something which will never be able to be resolved, it's a question that I'm going to ask for which there is no answer, is this. Although she knew from the start that she was a writer, she did not know that she was a poet until much later. Why did it take her decades to find her genre? I don't have an answer for that. And as with anybody who has lived in anonymity, there is not going to be, I think, a way to find out an answer to that because she didn't leave a paper trail. Let's consider her in relationship to three of her almost uh, contemporaries. She was born in 1920.
1920. Elizabeth Bishop was born in 1911. Robert Lowell was born in 1917. A little later, James Merrill was born in 1926. All three of those people knew right from the beginning that they were poets. And right from the beginning, they made sure that everybody else knew that they were poets too. The first letter we have, or at least the first one in the recently published collection of Robert Lowell's letters, was written by Lowell at the age of 18, right after he had dropped out of Harvard, to Ezra Pound. Dear Mr. Pound, I want to come study with you in Rapallo. Take me on, I've got the goods. Right from the beginning, Lowell knew what he wanted. Elizabeth Bishop, the quiet poet, saved all of her letters. Her letters are there. She knew that she was going to be somehow remembered. Even the most private of people sometimes know. James Merrill, in part because of the, uh, uh, the privilege and the family into which he was born, saved everything. But of Clampett, we have very little. There cannot be a biography written of her because most of the people who might contribute to it are dead or have forgotten things. She lived in Manhattan from 1942 until her death, and the first letter that I was able to discover from her was one written in 1950. Now here she was, consider this, she was what used to be called a career girl in Manhattan. She was in her 20s. She was living the kind of bohemian life that young people now have to go to uh, Brooklyn or Queens or Staten Island or New Jersey to live because they can't afford to live in Manhattan anymore. There was also, by the way, a war going on. Uh, sailors and soldiers were shipping out and coming back. She lived on West 12th Street, uh, a little flat that she kept throughout her life, even after she met the man that she cohabited with. She lived on West 12th Street. Leonard Bernstein lived on West 12th Street in the 40s. Madeleine Lengel lived on West 12th. Did they know one another? Did they see one another? What was she doing? We don't know. We know that there were boyfriends, that there were lovers, but she was very reticent about them. And even her family and her friends say that she didn't talk about them too much. There was an engagement, but it was broken. There was somebody who was English. There was somebody who was German. There was somebody else. We don't know who they are. We don't know what happened to them. After two years, she got a job at Oxford University Press, an entry-level job, and she rose up, she worked her way up the ladder until she was something like the head of foreign rights or the secretary for the head of foreign rights at OUP. In 1949 or 1950, Oxford University Press had an essay contest, the first prize for which was a trip to England. And the essay was, why do I want to go to England? Many people entered, Amy won. So she went to Europe in 1950. Now this is another detail of cultural life that needs to be talked about or written about. The first time that the continent had been open for tourism in 15 years, Americans were going abroad to a burned out landscape, but the Fulbright Commission was beginning to give grants, the American Academy in Rome was giving grants. All of these people who had heard about and read about Europe and European culture were going in 1950 and throughout the 50s. She went to England, she fell in love with England, she traveled around and she came home and quit her job in order to write her novel. Amy Clampett wrote three unpublished novels. They are unpublished because they are unpublishable. They're awful. 
Um, I've read parts of them in manuscript. They are very long on um, descriptions of nature, the farmland in Iowa, and also very long on philosophical discussions of the sort you might find in a novel by Aldous Huxley. I had occasion to reread Point Counterpoint over the summer. It is ghastly. It is just awful. So she was writing these sort of novels of ideas, but she didn't have the ear or the eye or the imagination for mm, plot or characterization. Hard to do a novel without that. So she went back to work. Nobody would take her novels. She went back to work, and in the 50s, she got a job as the librarian for the National Audubon Society on Upper Fifth Avenue. Amy always, she sort of looked like a bird too, but she loved nature, she loved birds, and this was an ideal job for her. Something happened to her, and I'm going to read you something from a letter. Something happened to her which is as though from a textbook about the nature of literary inspiration. This happened to her, it's Easter week in 1956. She's writing a letter here to her youngest brother at home. It's a Sunday, uh, March 17th, 1956. She has gone to the cloisters that morning to walk around and listen. And I'll read you from this letter. She said, she says that she was looking at the tapestries rather than at the paintings. She, for some reason, found them more interesting that day. The place was full of people, most of whom had cameras and who appeared to have come primarily for the purpose of taking snaps, snapshots of each other. I think even 50 years ago, before video cameras, that's what they're doing. They're taking pictures. They're not looking and who appear to have come primarily for the purpose of taking snapshots of each other. Even so, I didn't mind them in the least. When it came time for the regular Sunday program of transcribed medieval music, I found myself a stone instead of a chair to sit on and watch them file in. And after a while, when the first Kyrie started, I stopped watching the people and simply concentrated on listening to the music and watching the sunlight come in at a 13th century window. The Kyrie, which of course is a cry for mercy, and the sun on the stone, a purely physical phenomenon, seemed while I listened to have some affinity, almost to be one and the same thing. After a while, when the music changed to something else, I was mildly aware that while this was going on, I had, perhaps for no more than an instant, but there is no measuring this kind of experience. I had entirely forgotten my own existence. It is the sort of thing that has happened to me a few times in my life, but always before in moments of great excitement and with a kind of incredulity surrounding it like an iron ring. This time, there was no iron ring, no excitement, no surprise even, but a serenity so complete that I hardly thought about it just then, I simply took it for granted. Possibly this is what is supposed to take place at baptism, but if baptism it was, it wasn't of water, but of light. By this time it was late afternoon, and with the reflection from the river so bright that you could barely look at it directly, the whole hilltop, the whole world was fairly brimming with radiance. I walked around for a while, looked at the people, and walked to the subway rather tired, and yet rested, too, and pleased 
with everything. This is a very long letter, and it's like the long journal letters that Keats wrote to his brother and his brother and sister-in-law, first in England and then in Kentucky. And she goes on to say that later that evening she met with a friend of hers, and they were talking about this, and they were also talking about Keats and Catherine Mansfield, both of whom had died young of tuberculosis, both of whom were excellent writers of letters, both of whom knew they were going to die. And this leads her to talk about the fear of death. And this is where I'm going to pick up what happened, the fear of death. It was as though that afternoon, the previous afternoon, any possibility of envy had been obliterated, the envy of Keats and uh, Mansfield. It was only by degrees that I began to be able to describe to myself the experience that I had had, which was not a temporary extinction of personality, but the opposite. For the first time in my life, without even knowing, sorry, without even knowing that I knew it, I had been without fear. That is the negative way of stating it. The positive statement has ramifications which are still unfolding, and for all I know, they will go on unfolding forever. I did not know that this was what had happened until I began to describe my afternoon in the journal, which I have been keeping faithfully but spasmodically since New Year's. Before I had finished the entry, it interested me so much that I decided to try to make a short story out of it, purely for the exercise. And then something happened, which I could absolutely never have predicted. I have not altogether recovered yet from the surprise, though I suppose I shall get used to it in time. Quite as though they had a will of their own, the sentences broke in a way that was not my usual style at all. Rather frightened, I admit, for the moment, I let them break. The next thing I knew, they had begun to reach out for rhymes. This frightened me almost more until I discovered that finding a rhyme could be almost as natural a process as the resolution of a dominant chord. I didn't have to look for them, they simply came. Now, I have not even so much as thought of wanting to write poetry since I was about 16 and produced the usual 16-year-old effusions. I associated writing in verse with adolescence. There was a time even when I stopped reading poetry, though that was terminated a good while back. So here I am writing a long poem. It is already something like 500 lines, and though the end appears to be in sight, I'm not sure. The poem was 700 lines long. It was awful. Uh, it was written in rhymed couplets. It was never published. This is 1956. It took 20 years for Amy Clampett to become Amy Clampett, and we don't know why. At this time, she underwent a temporary conversion. She became very interested in high Episcopalianism, high Anglicanism, and she began joining a church um, in the village, a high Anglican church, partly as a result of that sort of baptismal experience that she had at the cloisters. And for 10 years, she was deeply involved in religion. One thing that might be said of her is that she was always questing for one kind of truth or another. By the mid-60s, that quest had played itself out and religion was no longer important to her, in part because, or entirely because, of uh, the war in Vietnam and other kinds of political movements into which she threw herself with great energy and ferocity. Amy was from a Quaker family and she had always taken very seriously the Quaker commitment to political justice and political 
activism. She became very um, impatient with the Episcopal Church and its refusal to be more against the war than it was. And she even had an interview with Bishop Paul Moore, arguably one of the most liberal left-leaning clerics in the United States, who was the Bishop of New York at St. John the Divine, and was simply impatient and essentially said, I will have nothing to do with the church, and went back to Quakerism. Her letters are filled with wonderful, sometimes hilarious, sometimes very moving reports of taking the bus to Washington to go on protest marches, sharing uh, marijuana cigarettes with teenagers, getting locked up in jail on rent strikes. She was very involved being locked up with the late Grace Paley, who was a kind of pal of hers uh, from the village. In 1968, while campaigning for Eugene McCarthy uh, in the village, she met a man who became her lover, her partner for the rest of her life, uh, a law professor, first at NYU and then at Columbia, named Harold Korn. And she moved in with him slowly uh, over the years, and they were a couple until um, her death. They did not marry uh, until a month before she died. She had a kind of, uh, both of them had a kind of, of uh, intellectual and moral disapproval of marriage, and each of them was neurotic enough not to really think that the other one really loved him or her, but they, they did marry essentially on her deathbed. And then in 1977, having left the Audubon Society and gone back to freelance editing for Dutton, she enrolled in a poetry writing course at the New School in Manhattan. And she studied with a young man who was, a, she referred to him as a kind of jock, who does not approve, she says, of the kind of thing I do. But there must have been, on the one hand, sufficient sympathy and respect, and on the other hand, a kind of fire that was lit underneath her, because then she began writing the poems that began appearing in 1977 and 1978 in the New Yorker and the Atlantic Monthly and elsewhere. Amy had the unusual, if not unique, experience of coming home one day to her mailbox and finding a letter from Howard Moss, the poetry editor of The New Yorker, accepting some poems of hers. And I say it was unusual, if not unique, because she would never had submitted the poems. Her editor at Dutton, a man named Jack McRae, had sent them in. And Howard Moss said, I like your poems. I'm going to take one. And he did. And then more came. In 1978, uh, she sent some poems to the Atlantic Monthly, where the very young Mary Jo Salter, fresh out of Harvard College, was reading The Slush Pile as the uh, assistant to Peter Davison. And um, she wrote Amy back a letter saying, oh, I, I know your name, I think I've seen your work, you must be like me, an unknown aspiring young poet. And Amy wrote back and said, well, unknown and aspiring, yes, but uh, young, no. And then there began a, a great intense uh, friendship and correspondence between the two of them. Then followed the years of fame, a MacArthur Fellowship, and then in 1992, she developed ovarian cancer and died in 1994. She died in the little cottage in Lenox, Massachusetts with uh, the Mount, Edith Wharton's house, on one side and Tanglewood on the other side. And it was a house which, after his death seven years later, Harold Korn set up as a uh, residency for 
writers, critics, poets, etc. And I was the first resident, I was the first holder of a fellowship there in 2003-2004, in which time I compiled these letters. Um, Many of the poems, many of the poems have an anecdotal base. And so the title poem of the Kingfisher, her her first book, is a very interesting poem about a love affair that has gone awry, but it's miniaturized. I mean, it's, it's, everything has been pared down. There are no names, there's no storm and drong. There's just the sense of a love affair that could have been a short story or a novel. Many of the poems are anecdotal. All of the poems about bus rides and train rides and political protests, uh, you know, I'm going here, I'm going there. So that narrative thrust is very strong. In terms of her literary influences, she was always quite clear. Um, Hopkins, first of all. And then the Romantics, Wordsworth and Keats. I mean, a great, a great series of her poems is called Homage to John Keats, which is, I think, has to be judged a kind of failure because it is so inward and so deep and so referential to Keats. Every line in the poem refers to or actually quotes something from Keats that only somebody who has as great a knowledge of Keats as Amy did could really understand or appreciate that poem. She loved the English Romantics. She loved the 19th century. She once said, I should have been in the 19th century. She also said once in a letter, I am the 60s, because her letters have things like recipes for granola or how to do macrame. So she was very much a child of the 60s. And then, of course, let me me continue, Uh, Dickinson and James. She loved James. And that's where the long sentences would have come from. In terms of the romantics, let me say something that will hark back to something I said at the very beginning about the choice of genre. At the end of her life, Amy was hell-bent on writing a play, she wrote it, about Dorothy Wordsworth, one of her heroes. I mean, the, the women of the 19th century were very much in her imagination. George Eliot, uh, Margaret Fuller, Dickinson, and uh, Dorothy Wordsworth. And she venerated Dorothy Wordsworth as a writer and as a presence. She wanted to write a play about Dorothy Wordsworth and her relationship with her brother and the little circle at Grasmere. Draft after draft, piece after piece of this play uh, were sent to various friends of hers, to Mary Jo Salter, to Helen Venler, to this one and that one. They all went back to her and they said, this is terrible. It's not a play. There's no action. Oh, good morning, William. Hello, Dorothy. What's for breakfast? I mean, this is the, oh, here comes Coleridge. Let's talk to him. Uh, It's not a play. There's no conflict. And it was put on for one performance at Agassiz Theater at Harvard. And, you know, she was there and everybody had to say nice things. But it was awful. But again, it's an interesting question about how a writer finds her genre. There are dramatic things in the poems. There are narrative or novelistic things in the poems. But she couldn't write novels and she couldn't write plays. One thing that I found very interesting when I was uh, accumulating the letters, two things I found interesting when I was accumulating the letters, uh, one of which was that all of her letters, whether written or typed, are, as they say, letter perfect. No grammatical errors, no spelling, I mean, the occasional, you know, typo, which you can correct silently. Not like the letters of Robert Lowell, which are all over the place, or other people whose minds are racing. I mean, Amy wrote clearly. And in fact, it struck me that she had two styles. Her letters, although each one is crafted for 
like any great letter, is crafted for the individual recipient of it, unlike a blog, which is designed for the blogosphere or the blogheads. Um, each letter is crisp and clear and utterly precise. The same eye for detail and looking at landscape that is evinced in the poetry comes out in the prose, utterly clear. The poetic style is much more involuted, syntactically confused, and Baroque, but for prose, crystalline. The other thing about the letters is that um, I was giving a talk last year at, at Yale, and one of the people in the audience, a distinguished poet, editor, critic, said, you know, reading these letters, they don't sound like a poet's letters. And I said, why? And he said, she doesn't use any metaphor. Lowell's letters, Merrill's letters, are filled with the same sort of metaphoric stuff that you get in their poetry. So this is, a, this is a, the second half of what I said about them. They are so clear that they usually do without metaphor, with the stuff of poetry. That is the, the, the I don't want to say bare, but the clear journalistic style of reportage is what she brings there. Um, we have the evidence of her writing career, the unpublished manuscripts, we have her letters, and we have her poems. Let me end, because I've gone way beyond the time that would be seemly for any speaker to uh, ask your indulgence for. This was the poem that was the first of her published poems in the New Yorker, The Sun Underfoot Among the Sun Drops. And it, it is in some ways, whether actually or not, doesn't matter, in symbolic ways, I think it is the fruit, 20 years later, of that baptism by light that she describes in the letter to her brother from 1956. Amy and Hal went to Maine every summer, uh, and this is a Maine poem. Uh, the, sun, the sundew is a carnivorous bogwort. It's a, it's a little thing that eats, and it's a tiny thing. And uh, this is about falling in to a kind of pit of sundews. You will notice, and I will just mention this now rather than afterwards, the poem has a wonderful kind of symmetry, and it has only four sentences, the third of which is very long. And the, that sentence is one that shows us the mind in the act of composing, the mind in the act of finding what Wallace Stevens said would suffice, but it's the mind in the act of enacting a long syntactic journey which is also a long intellectual and I would say theological journey. The sun underfoot among the sundews. An ingenuity too astonishing to be quite fortuitous is this bog full of sundews, sphagnum lined and shaped like a teacup. A step down and you're into it. A wilderness swallows you up, ankle, then knee, then midriff to shoulder deep in wet-footed understory, an overhead spruce tamarack horizon hinting you'll never get out of here. But the sun among the sundews down there is so bright, an underfoot webwork of carnivorous rubies, a star swarm thick as the gnats they're set to catch, delectable double-faced cockleburs, each hair tip a sticky mirror afire with sunlight, a million of them and again a million each mirror a trap set to unhand, unbelieving that either, a first cause said once, let there be sundews, and there were, 
or they've made their way here unaided other than by that backhand roundabout refusal to assume responsibility known as natural selection. But the sun underfoot is so dazzling down there among the sundews, there is so much light in that cup that looking, you start to fall upward. Thank you. That was Willard Spiegelman speaking at the Arts Club of Chicago on October 15, 2007. Spiegelman's book, Love, Amy, The Selected Letters of Amy Clampett, was published in 2005. You can read some of Amy Clampett's poems at poetryfoundation.org. You'll also find articles about poetry, an online archive of more than 8,000 poems, and audio programs to download. This has been Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.